Okay, good evening everyone. It's uh, again a wonderful privilege to be here and uh, always feel uh, at home here, but even more so today because there's some fellow, I don't know what you call people from Johannesburg, Johannesburgians. Uh, uh, it's lovely to see Gavin and family here. Um, didn't have to travel all this way, I'm just down the road from you, so. <laughs> um, but that's, that's what it's like being a celebrity preacher. You know, people travel from <laughs> all over. Uh, well, we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if you can turn there, um, it's uh, December. As my daughter would say, I don't know if it's like 12 or 13 more sleeps until, until Christmas. And so it is tradition to, to look at passages that deal with the, the advent of Christ, the incarnation, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, without his coming, you know, life is meaningless, everything is meaningless, we are still in our sins, we are still undone. But he has come, uh, he came in, in the flesh to redeem his people. So Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. So I'll read through it first. This is what Matthew writes. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, uh, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So just that far. So uh, there's a lot that one could say about this passage. I just want to draw out a few things. From, from the passage, but before we get into the passage, just to give some background to Matthew's Gospel, uh, context is always critical. So uh, Matthew's Gospel is written really for a Jewish audience, um, but that's not to say it's only concerned with Jews. In fact, uh, Matthew is the book in which we find the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. And so he's challenging the Jews to say, uh, look, the Messiah has come, but it's the Messiah for the whole world, for all nations. Uh, and the, this good news needs to be taken to, to all people. But he is trying to prove and show to the Jewish audience that Jesus Christ is the King. 
Uh, and he, he starts off by, by showing that from a genealogy. He's a descendant of David. Uh, he shows it in numerous ways. We'll look at some of them a bit later on. But he wants to prove that Jesus is, is the king. Uh, he is the promised king that Israel is expecting. But then he has a very strange way of showing how great this king is. When you read the first few chapters, it's uh, very strange because you would expect a king to be born in, in, in pomp and ceremony and great glory and in a mansion and all of these things and with great acclaim. Uh, you would expect the coming of the Messiah to bring great joy and uh, everything starts to go well. But yet we find the opposite. We find that the coming of Jesus brings about the slaughter of many innocent uh, boys. So the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ brings shame and suffering and sorrow. Then we find that this, this great king has to flee to Egypt. Throughout Scripture, that's a shameful thing. Uh, whenever the, the Jews went to Egypt, uh, that was a shameful thing. It was, a, it was not a good thing. And here the king has to flee to Egypt so that he doesn't lose his life. Uh, and so, really, right up at front, Matthew says, the Messiah has come, but he's not come in the way that you expect him to come. Uh, and if you're familiar with the, the New Testament, you'll know that the Jews were expecting a political Messiah. They wanted to be free from Roman rule. Uh, and Matthew really highlights Jesus has not come to do that. That's not his goal. There is something much more serious. Uh, there is a much deeper problem with the human condition. That is our sin. And here in chapter 2, this well-known account, which you'll probably hear many times, or you'll see sort of uh, nativity scenes with Jesus in a manger and the, the donkeys and uh, sheep and things like that, and you'll see Mary there and Joseph, and you'll see some shepherds in the background, and then you'll see these three wise men. A uh, uh, few problems, but uh, fortunately nothing serious. Uh, we don't know if there were how many wise men there were actually. We know there are three gifts, but we don't, we're never told that there are three wise men. Uh, so uh, don't teach your children three wise men. We just don't know. Um, we just know that there were some wise men who brought three gifts. Also, uh, it seems that Jesus is much older. It's not at his birth. Okay, it seems this, this, this is a while later. Jesus is older, nearer to two years old, because remember Herod goes and kills all children, all male children under the age of two. So this is not at the same time as his birth. It's a bit later, later on. But again, none of those things are serious issues. They're not heretical. Um, but it just shows, you know, that we need to read the scriptures carefully. Now, when you come to narratives, stories uh, in scripture, it is very rare that the, the narrator, the author, will give explanations and that's one of the, the sort of can be frustrating things, but one of the also the, the, the fun things about reading the scriptures is that you have to read very carefully. The biblical authors are very sophisticated, very nuanced. Um, and it, as I said, it's very rare for them to insert the doctrine that, or whether this was right or whether it was wrong. And so one of the ways that we need to, you know, how to figure out what is the point of a passage is that the, the authors will use various rhetorical devices. One of them is repetition. So I don't know if you noticed, as we read through that passage, one of the words that's repeated is worship. 
It's repeated three times uh, in verses 2, 8, and 11. Uh, 2, verse 2, it says that the wise men have come and they're looking for Jesus, that they may come and worship him. They're looking for the one who is born king of the Jews. They say, where is he? We want to worship him. They come to Jerusalem. Uh, they see Herod, who is the uh, sort of the puppet king, but a king who had tremendous power. He's known as Herod the Great uh, because he built some incredible buildings. He, he built the temple as well, made it a, a, a beautiful structure and built Masada as well and um, another port city. He built some amazing things and he's known as Herod the Great, but he was a very cruel man. Uh, he killed many of his um, children and wives and uh, in fact the Roman emperor said, I, it's sort of a play on the Greek uh, the Greek word for pig and the Greek word for son sound very similar. He said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son, okay? because uh, he had a habit of killing his sons. Very cruel man, um, but he was, he was the, the king of, of Judea. And so they come and they say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We want to worship him. And then verse 8, remember Herod says, you know, when you find him, please come and tell me, because I also want to come and worship him. And then later on, verse 11, when, when the wise men do find the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us they worshipped him. And now this word, this Greek word translated as worship, has the idea of kneeling before. Okay, so it has to do with one's posture. To kneel before someone is to worship them. And of course, that portrays the humility and reverence okay, uh, to worship. Now, uh, the Bible teaches very clearly that we are all worshippers. Maybe you're here and you say, no, I'm an atheist. I'm not religious at all. I don't worship. Well, the Bible disagrees with you and says, no, every human being is a worshipper. In fact, we are created to, to worship. And the title for this sermon is Idol Factories. And I've taken that from a quote by Calvin, John Calvin, who said that our hearts are idol factories. So our hearts keep producing things to worship. And every human being is a worshiper. Uh, you may not worship God. Uh, you may not worship some, you know, many gods or an animal or whatever it is. But even if you deny the existence of all of those, you worship something or someone. You worship the creature rather than the creator. You worship yourself, perhaps. You worship your own uh, reason. You worship money, you worship status, power, sexual pleasure, comfort, uh, whatever it is, that thing has become your, your idol. Calvin also says that man is homo religionis, man is by nature religious. Every human being worships. Now, the Bible teaches that Idols cannot satisfy us. The only one who can satisfy us is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Your heart is so massive that the only one who can satisfy your heart is God himself. You could have the whole world. You could have the whole universe. It would not satisfy your heart. Maybe you still live with the illusion that if I just had this one, one more thing, I would be 
I would, then I would be happy. If I just had this spouse, if I, if I was just married, if we just had children, if we just got a better job, if we just had a little bit more money, if, I, if this happened or that happened, if I just got my degree, my qualification, then that's the final piece of the jigsaw. I'll be happy then. Well, go and speak to people who've already got those things and ask them, is that the final piece of the jigsaw? I think it's Jim Carrey, a famous actor, who said, I wish everyone could become rich and famous so they would realize it doesn't make you happy. But yet we don't believe it. We think, well, no, you know, that's, that's just him. But if I had those things, I would be satisfied. But I would encourage you, go and look at it. Because as you grow, isn't that right? As you, as you, you know, when you're little, you think, if I just had that Lego set, then I would be happy. <laughs> uh, but then you get it. Are you happy? Are you satisfied then for the rest of your life? No. You think, well, then if I just had this, I would be happy. If I just, if I just uh, pass this exam, then I'm fine. And you keep finding, no, it's not enough. If I just had a car, I remember that as a, as a, a student, if I just had a car, I would be happy. I got a car, and you're happy for a while, and then I think, well, I, it needs a better sound system. Then I will be really happy. <laughs> It needs a free-flow exhaust, because then it needs to go a bit faster. Then it needs these type of carburetors. This is a long time ago, before fuel injection. <laughs> uh, uh, if it had these mags, whatever it is, and all of those things. But it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't mean any of those things are evil in and of themselves. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, these are all good things that God gives us to enjoy. But as ends in themselves, they cannot satisfy. Idols always over-promise and under-deliver. They promise everything, but then they, they under-deliver. They don't do what they, they promise. And so if you're still thinking there is this thing, or this person, or this or that, that will satisfy me, I would encourage you, look back in your life and see. Learn from your life. Learn from your past experiences and realize, no, they can't. They cannot satisfy and really, uh, those who, who deal with addictions, and uh, I taught, I used to preach at a drug and alcohol rehab clinic for about a decade, uh, and they talk about the law of diminishing returns. And so that's, the idea is, so a person starts down the path of taking drugs, so the first time they take drugs, whatever the drug is, it gives this, them this incredible high. The next time to achieve that same high, they have to take a lot more. It's the law of diminishing returns. The same amount of drugs won't give them that same high, and it carries on like that. And that's what, what idols do. And that's why people get sucked deeper and deeper and deeper into, into terrible addictions and, and destructive behavior because they think, you know, I just need to, to go further. Then I will be happy. And it cannot, cannot satisfy. It's, it's an empirical fact, Okay. The Bible teaches that men and women are totally depraved. And what that means is not that we're all as bad as we could be. It means that at our core, we are evil. And that uh, fallenness, that sinfulness is affected and infected every part of our, our being. Our thinking, our senses, our emotions, all of those things have been affected. And that's why when people 
You know, the fact that people deny total depravity shows how depraved we are. Uh, it's an empirical fact. You don't need to go far, pick up a newspaper, you will see that men and women are evil. And yet people deny it. No, deep down we're good. We're not. Deep down our hearts are idol factories. We keep making idols, things to worship. And we move from one to the other. And so this passage is about worship. And so the challenge, and really this passage is about where, where do you fit in? Are you... Are you a wise person, like these wise men who truly worship the Lord? Or are you like Herod, a false worshiper? And this is especially relevant for those who proclaim the name of Christ. Notice what Herod does. He calls the religious leaders. He says, you know, what's, what's going on here? And they go. They know. They go and they say, yeah, the scriptures say that's where he's going to be born. They, they understood that. He was in Jerusalem. He knew about the prophecies. He knew about the scriptures. And yet he was not a true worshiper. He was a liar. He said, I also want to worship him. But we know later on, he doesn't. He wants to kill this, this king. And so it is easy to pretend to be a Christian. But actually, when Christ confronts you on the idols in your heart, it reveals your heart that you don't actually love him. Remember the parable of the prodigal son in Luke, so chapter 18. Uh, he says to his dad a, a shocking statement. He says, give me the inheritance now. Basically saying, dad, I wish you were dead, but you're not dead yet. But can I just have the stuff that's going to come to me? Uh, even in, in, in our culture today, it's very rude. Uh, never mind in, a, in a, uh, an honor-shame culture, a traditional culture. It was a shocking request. Uh, and yet the father is gracious to him and... And gives him his inheritance. And he goes off and you know the story that he wastes his living with riotous uh, lifestyle. But eventually he comes to his senses. And we think all along, but the other son is the good guy. He, he stayed at home. What a good guy. He's a faithful person. He loves the father. You know, I want my son to be like that. And then we see, no, wait a minute. This guy doesn't love the father at all. He doesn't care about the father. He doesn't respect the father. He also wants the father dead. He's just going about it in a different way. He's pretending to love the father. He's pretending to obey the father, but all he's doing is biding his time. He's just doing what he has to do until the father's out of the picture. And that's the horror, and that's why the Lord has so much to say about those who are religious. Say, I want to be a worshiper. Miss Psalm 2 says, kiss the son. Kiss the Son. Bend, kneel before the Son, before Christ. Kiss Him. Come in humility and submission. And isn't it interesting that Judas kissed the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't he? And yet he hated Christ. He betrayed Him. And so where do you, where do you fall in? One commentator notes that this story is a story of two conflicting narrative agendas. Those who truly want to worship the Messiah, and a false worshiper. And notice where here it is. He's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents the cultural elite, the intelligentsia, the institutions, the nobility, the aristocrats, the religious leaders. If you wanted to be anyone, that's the place that you wanted to, that's, that's where you had to go. 
It represented the status quo. And Jesus comes along and threatens that. And that's what the gospel does. It threatens our little kingdoms. In fact, he overthrows our kingdoms, doesn't he? Uh, you cannot build your kingdom and be part of Christ's kingdom. You're either for him or you're against him. It's as simple as that. Your life is not your own. You're bought with a price. If you're a Christian, you belong to him. And your life is about building his kingdom. About expanding his kingdom and making his name great. In your work sphere, in your studies, in your family, wherever you find yourself, you need to think like that, to have that mindset that you live for, for him. Now these wise men, they, they eventually come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they follow the star and they come to him, they, they, they see him and they bow down and they worship and they bring him gifts and very strange gifts, aren't they? We're familiar with them, but it is, they are odd gifts to bring to a child. I don't know what you're going to get for Christmas this year, uh, maybe socks or something like that. And, um, uh, but they bring this little, this child, this young boy, they bring him frankincense, myrrh and gold and, uh, uh, they were, however, very precious gifts, very costly gifts. Okay? Of course, gold we are familiar with. We know that's valuable and that's expensive. But I can tell you that frankincense and myrrh were also very expensive and costly. And so they bring these gifts to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, theologians have studied this because uh, the Bible refers to these three, um, to gold and frankincense and myrrh, uh, throughout the Scriptures. And when you do a biblical theological study of these passages, we're able to see that they symbolize certain things. Now, I'm not saying here that when the wise men brought these gifts, they understood what they were doing. Uh, but it is a common thing in Scripture that people act better than they know or even speak better than they know. In John's Gospel, it tells us about the high priest. The high priest said it is better that one man dies than that the people die. And John tells us he, speaks better, he spoke better than he knew. That is the truth. He was not a believer, but it is better that Christ dies than that all the people die. It's the Gospel right there. One person dying in the place of many. But they bring these three, three gifts and theologians have noted that these three gifts point to the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Francis Turretin, theologian from about three or four hundred years ago, he said this, the threefold misery of men introduced by sin, of ignorance, guilt, and tyranny and bondage by sin, required this conjunction of a threefold office. Ignorance is healed by the prophetic, guilt by the priestly, the tyranny and corruption of sin by the kingly office. Prophetic light scatters the darkness of error. The merit of the priest takes away guilt and procures a reconciliation for us. The power of the king removes the bondage of sin and death. And so... The effects of sin and the effects of the fall are, are massive. We are now plunged into ignorance. 
We are now full of guilt. And we are enslaved to sin. We need someone who can come and deal with all three of these insurmountable problems. We need a prophet, a priest, and a king. And in the Old Testament, you would never find, you could not find all of those together. A king was not allowed to be a priest. Remember, there was one time a king tried to do sacrifices and he got leprosy. It was not allowed. Because there was one coming. It was meant for only one human being, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was to be the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And so how do these gifts point to these offices? Well, the first one, myrrh. Myrrh was used to embalm bodies. So myrrh was used when people died. We see that in John's Gospel. Nicodemus brought a large quantity of myrrh to embalm the body of Christ. And so myrrh points towards the fact that Christ has come to die. Myrrh points, is a prophetic act. It points to, the, to Christ's office as a, a prophet. And that deals with our ignorance. Uh, I think you, you would all agree that um, we live in, 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 in many ways a very ignorant age. Um, everyone thinks they're not ignorant. Suddenly, everyone's an expert on everything. Suddenly, it's like, um, I think I read to you last time I was, I was here that, um, that parody article of a, a hospital in Australia that is uh, firing all the doctors and hiring parents who know how to search the internet. Okay? Uh, suddenly, everyone's an expert on every topic, and yet the Bible teaches, no, we are ignorant. And we're ignorant of this core, this core truth we don't know how to be saved. We don't know where salvation comes from. We don't know how to be right with God. We don't know how to deal with our guilt and shame. And Christ comes and removes that ignorance. He is a prophet who tells us the truth. Remember Pilate. Pilate's sort of the first postmodern person. He says, what is truth? And uh, that's the world that we live in now, uh, where it's even, you know, dangerous to say this is the truth. It's seen as rude and arrogant, bigoted, to say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, not a truth, not, you know, a life, but the way, the truth, and the life. Now, we're not saying it on our own authority. If I was saying it on my own authority, it would be arrogant. But it's on the authority of God. And I might say it in an arrogant way, and I, I hope not to do that. I don't want to be arrogant. So we don't want that. We don't want to be proud, horrible, arrogant Christians, condescending Christians. Uh, but that doesn't change the, the fact that it is true. Jesus Christ is the truth. It is fascinating that all other religious leaders and gurus, they never claim to be the truth. They always show this is the way to truth. But Jesus Christ comes and says, I am the truth. He is the truth. He is the one who is able to reveal truth to us. He doesn't leave us in darkness. He doesn't say, well, figure it out on your, on your own. He comes and reveals the truth to us. That's why the scriptures are so important. And what a privilege it is to have God's word in it, in our own languages, be able to, to freely 
uh, read the scriptures to see what God tells us. And so really take advantage of that um, while, we, while we still have it. We don't know when it, if it will be taken away. We don't know what the future holds. But while we have God's word, read it. Hide God's word in your heart. It is the truth. The prophet reveals what is hidden. Christ has come to reveal what is hidden. To remove the darkness and, and ignorance from our minds. And then Jesus says, priest. The next gift is frankincense. And as the, the, the name even suggests, incense. And so incense was used in the temple. Frankincense was used in the temple. Uh, in temple worship. And so the, that is, involves the priests. Uh, used in the sacrificial system. And it symbolizes, even in, the, in, in uh, Revelation, speaks of the incense and it speaks of the prayers of the saints. And so uh, Christ as priest speaks of one who is a mediator, one who intercedes for his people. But Christ is not simply a priest who sacrifices. He is also the sacrifice. He also lays down his life for us. You see, it's not really too much help just to know what's wrong with you. you know, if Christ came and just showed us how sinful we are, uh, that is very, very important because most of us don't think we're that bad. Uh, but it's a wonderful thing. Christ shows us how, how bad we actually are. But if that's all that he did, it doesn't help us. We need someone who can take our guilt away, someone who can deal with our sin. And that's why we need a, a great high priest, one who lays down his life for his people. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And maybe you're sitting here, you live with guilt. You try and numb it. Try and fill your mind with all sorts of things. Go to bed with your earphones in listening to podcasts, listening to stories, listening to music, so that you're never alone with your thoughts. Isn't it interesting that people don't like to be alone and just think anymore, just meditate? Uh, we, 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 we always need to be filling our lives with something, bouncing from one thing to another. And I think a lot of it has to do with the sense of guilt. An awareness of our sin, our brokenness before God, our rebellion against God. And we can even try and numb that feeling with being religious. Well, I'm going to be active in the church. I'm going to do lots of things so I don't feel so bad. I'm going to try and sort of atone for my sins. That's just religious Christianity. You've just turned Christianity into a works-based means of salvation. You're trying to pay for your sins. You're, what's fueling you is your guilt. Not your freedom in Christ. Not that your sins are forgiven. And so the good news is that there is a priest. There is one who can deal with your guilt. Take, has taken it away. The great transaction, the great swap, your sin, your guilt, your shame placed upon him. 
and he is destroyed in, in our place. And his righteousness is placed upon, upon us. His guilt, your guilt can be taken away. Guilt is so, so destructive. I'm not saying that, you know, just try and switch it off as though it's not real. If you're not repentant, you should have guilt. Okay? Praise God for guilt. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good sense to have. It's like that, uh, you know, the sense when you hurt yourself, when you touch something hot. It's a good thing. It's not nice. I remember um, as, a, as a little boy in the car, I was always fascinated by the cigarette lighter in the car. Okay. And you press it in and after a few seconds it pops out and it's red hot. And My mom said, never touch that, never touch that. And then she went into the shop the one day and I pushed it in and I took it out and I touched it. <laughs> uh, and I found that my senses were working well. Okay. It was functioning properly. And it's good because, of course, if you leave it there, it's going to cause damage. So guilt is a good thing. If you're sitting there and there's guilt because of the way that you're living, praise God for that. It means your conscience isn't seared. If you're sitting there and you're living in, in unrepentant, continuous, habitual sin, and there is no guilt, there's no shame, if you're falsely claiming the promises of God, but there's no repentance, you're living a life of lust and pornography and fornication, greed, materialism, rudeness, arrogance, you're on social media just blasting everyone in the name of Christ. <laughs> you're just a, a horrible person, a troll. But you know, I don't have any guilt. That's not because of Christ. You're in a frightening position. It means your conscience is seared. You've been down this path for so long that you don't even feel bad about it anymore. If you find yourself there, then cry out to God, Lord, Soften my heart. Help me to see my sin. May I flee to you. So guilt is a good thing. In its right place. Guilt is a bad thing. When you have repented and you, you're, you're looking to Christ and yet you're still feeling condemned. That's a different thing. Uh, that's that's uh, not a fully appropriating the promises of God. That's what Satan wants to do, doesn't he? He's the accuser of the brethren. He comes and accuses us. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. Yes, I know I'm not good enough, but he is good enough. Remember Martin Luther, uh, that famous story. When he, he says, when Satan comes and accuses you, you know, he, he, apparently he threw the little ink pot at Satan. And uh, you can still go to that castle, in Württemberg, I think it is, to the castle where, where that story happened, and they, they have a little ink stain on the wall. And uh, they, they top it up every now and then. They say that's where he threw the, the ink, ink well. Uh, probably, uh, he was talking metaphorically, throw the scriptures at him, okay? The ink of the scriptures. Uh, that's what you need to Throw at Satan. When he comes and accuses you, yes, I'm far worse than that, actually. Let me tell you all the other things. Uh, but I've confessed my sin, turned from my sin, and I'm trusting in Christ and claim the promises of Christ. There is forgiveness. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins. 
so that's a that's a that's a bad guilt to have. That's condemnation. And for God's children, as we as we uh, hold on to the promises of God, then there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Because of this great high priest, this priest who came to lay down his life for us, who's also the sacrifice, but he's a priest who intercedes for us, who prays for us. Isn't that incredible? You feeling down? Go and read Jesus' prayer for you in John 17. He prays for you. Isn't that incredible? You want to know how Jesus prays for you? Go and read John 17, interceding for us. This morning we were in our scripture reading, we were reading Hebrews 5. It talks about the priests in the Old Testament. And it says that they were also, because of their weakness, they were gentle with others. Isn't that interesting? I thought especially of those in pastoral ministry. How often are those in pastoral ministry not gentle with others? They're the opposite. They're abusive. They're condescending. They're threatening. They're militaristic. But not Christ. He remembers that we are dust. One Japanese theologian called uh, said that Jesus is the three mile per hour God. The three mile per hour God. Three miles per hour is the speed at which a person walks. What is he saying there? He's the God who walks with you. Isn't that beautiful? He's the God who walks with you. He's the the pioneer, he's not the general who sits back in the comfortable office and says, you guys go forward. He's the one who went ahead, the good shepherd. And apparently, I'm not an expert on these things, but from what I've read, you know, a shepherd has to lead the sheep. You can't drive sheep, you have to lead them. And that's what he does. And so let me also just as an aside, if you're in leadership in any form, whether it's in a company whether it's in your home, in the church, wherever you find yourself. The Bible is not just some sort of religious stuff for Sundays and for church community. It's for all of life. These principles are true for all of life. What type of a leader are you? Are you a leader like this? Do you pray for your family? Do you pray for those that uh, you employ? Do you pray for those in your team that you lead? You pray for those in the church, and are you leading them? Or are you one of those who drives, who tries to drive everyone? That's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is to lead, to go before, to find the still waters, to find the green pastures. So praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ, a eh? prophet who shows us what's wrong but doesn't leave us there. Well, now I know, but... You know, what's the point? But who actually now is able to take away my guilt, take away my shame. And then lastly, Jesus as King. And really the, the, the main focus of this passage is on the kingly office of Christ. In fact, it's the main focus of the whole of Matthew's gospel, as I said. And so this gift of gold is brought to Christ. And uh, the word gold is used nine times in the whole New Testament, and five of those times are found in the Gospel of Matthew, symbolizing the kingship of, of Christ. I mean, you don't give gold to a baby okay? <laughs> or to a toddler. 
Uh, it points beyond to something much greater. Um, uh, he is a king. In fact, uh, remember how the, the wise men came and they said, we are looking for him who is born king of the Jews. Not we're looking for the one who one day will be king of the Jews or something like that, or we're hoping. No, right now he is the king of the Jews. We're looking for him. Isn't that incredible? As a little toddler, he's already king of the Jews in weakness all the time in the Bible. It's remarkable. It's always weakness. Not what you expect. Not the way we would write the story. And that's why people reject it. Because we all want, we're all narcissists. We all want to either be great and everyone to know how great we are. And then if we're, you know, nobody knows how great we are, we all think, you know, if they really knew what I thought, they would know how great I am. Okay? And then we, we align ourselves with other narcissists, whether it's in the political realm or even pastors who are narcissists. Uh, that it, that's the way we function naturally. And yet the gospel comes and smashes all of that. It always is weakness. It's always the opposite to the way we would, we would, we would see things. Christ comes on a donkey, not on a great horse. Christ is stripped naked, a crown of thorns instead of a golden crown. Spat upon, beard ripped out, crucified, put to an open shame in front of everyone, even, even those closest to him, left him disciples who had been with him for three years. In fact, it's one of them who betrays him. You think, he can't be such a great leader if the people who really know him all leave him. Starts with 12 disciples, ends up with 11. It's like just a failure all over the place, humanly speaking. And yet, in all of this, he's winning. And so if, you, if you're coming... Uh, on a human level, to come to Christ because I want a better life now, I want a, you know, a full bank account, I want all of these things. No, you've missed it. It's a stumbling block to you, the same as it was to the Greeks and to the Jews. You've missed it. You're still using the human way of thinking. The human way of pomp and ceremony and what it means to be mighty. The biblical way is to come as a servant in weakness. And that's where strength is found. So gold is given to a child. But yet this child is king of the Jews, king of God's people. And we need this third office. We need a prophet to deal with our ignorance. We need a priest to deal with our sin and shame and guilt. But we need the kingly office to actually deliver us and change us. We need a king who can set us free. That's what kingship speaks of in the human realm. King has power, isn't that right? King has power and a king protects, is supposed to protect the citizens of the monarchy. And so Jesus Christ is the great king. He is the king who can set you free from your sin. Maybe you're, you're sitting there and there is a habitual pattern of sin and you're almost at the place of giving up. What's the point? 
keep falling into the same thing. Let me encourage you, Christ is a king. Cry out to him, seek him. Now there are many practical steps that this king has, has told us to, to put into practice as we fight sin. And one of them might be for you that you need to go and confess and you need to speak to someone else. And that's the thing. You need to actually humble yourself. I, uh, um, my childhood, my dad was, he worked on the mines and he was uh, just always at work. It was uh, hardly ever saw him. And then I went to boarding school for high school. And so I developed sort of this, this, independence, that I, I, I figure things out myself. So maths problems, I try and figure it out myself. But it became a form of pride because I was just too proud to ask other people for, for help. And then you bring that into the Christian life. You think, well, no, I will sort this out. I've managed to sort these things out in my life before. I will sort this thing out. And you keep failing and failing and failing. You think, well, it's some, you know... I need this five-step program or this seven-step program or whatever it is. And the Lord is saying, no, you need the body of Christ. You need one another. You need to humble yourself, confess to others. Uh, because, listening to an audio book at the moment, we live in a world where it's no longer, the, the, the ideal is not to actually be good. It's simply be, to be seen to be good. We're just worried about what other people think of us. That's why there's such an obsession with the external, with fashion and um, the way people even take selfies, the way they have to look for the camera and the filters and all of these things. As long as I look like I've got it together, as long as I look cool or hot or sexy or whatever it is, as long as I look good in the church, that's all I need. It's just an image thing. The Bible teaches, no, that's nonsense. It's not about that. It's about actually being good, actual integrity. And what's happened in, in the West, at least, is now we're actually cynical that anyone can actually be good. We think, oh, we, now, you know the language now is, oh, we're all messed up. We're all sinners. Now there's an element of truth, yes. But now it's become an excuse. In fact, it's glorying in how sinful we are. And how messed up we are. Now it's, that's, the, that's the, the big thing. Instead of saying, no, what does the Bible one for me, and what is able to happen is that I can actually be good. Not perfect, but I, by God's grace, change on the inside. Not just look like I'm good because I've got a nice Bible and it's leather bound and it's the thick one, it's a study one. <laughs> uh, it's the hyper, super reformed, super spiritual one that I've got. And uh, I do all of these things and everything like that. And I look good, so I can't go and tell people, actually, I battle with this sin and I keep falling in it and I need help the heart of a Pharisee. And the Lord is calling you to that. As a king, he's saying, this is what you need to do. And this is how you will get victory. But there is victory in me, but you, I'm the king. I'm telling you, this is how you do it. A king who can actually protect his citizens and help his citizens and look after his citizens and set us free from the bondage and tyranny of sin. Let me just say that in, the, in uh, the world in which we live now, this is very, very important because 
it used to be maybe 40, 50 years ago that people just knew certain things were wrong. It's wrong to sleep together before you're married. People knew that. Even unbelievers knew that. It was just common knowledge. You know that. Now it's, what? We're, we're the baddies now for believing that. We're, we're immoral. How dare you say something like that? It's my body. I'm free to do with my body whatever I want as long as I don't hurt other people. And that's the logic. Now, now we are seen as being immoral. So telling people, hey, this is wrong, doesn't really make them feel bad. They don't agree with you anymore. But what people think they have now is freedom and they're authentic. And you know what the Bible actually says? You're not free. You're a slave to your sin. So let me encourage you as you witness maybe to friends and fellow students, use this as well. Say, look, you're not actually free. Try and stop doing that. Oh, no, I can stop when everyone... Okay, do it. You're a slave to your sin. You're in bondage. You are not free. But Christ is able to, to set us free, to, to deliver us from those strongholds as we obey Him and walk in His, His ways. We need a King to, to make us right. Now these wise men at the end, they come to Christ and what do they do? They fall down and they, they worship Him. And that should be the response of every single one of us. I'm not saying necessarily physically. There's nothing wrong with doing that physically. And it might be a good thing to do as you come to the Lord when you pray or whatever it is to actually kneel. Okay? So posture is often important in the Bible. But again, not to be obsessed with the externals. The idea here is, is to humbly adore, to worship, to come before Him, to acknowledge Him, to praise Him. And they do that. They come to this little child. And they worship him. They understood something. This one is the king of the Jews. This one is the, the promised Messiah. The one who can make all things right. The one who can deal with sin and guilt and shame. The one who will restore all things. I heard a, in closing, I heard a very a wonderful story. I heard a little snippet and then I went and researched and found out a whole lot more about it. Uh, there is a statue in, in Copenhagen in Denmark, a statue of Christ in, in a Reformed church. And uh, the, the, the sculptor is a man called Albert Thorvaldsen. And he made this statue, and uh, he made it with Christ looking up with his arms outstretched, so very triumphalistic. And uh, that evening it rained. And there was a leak in the roof and water fell onto the statue and softened it. And so when he went through in the morning, he, had f he found the statue like this. And he was devastated. And he just locked it up and just went away. But eventually he went back and he thought, actually, this is, this is quite remarkable because it shows the love of Christ for, for all nations and that all must come to him. But one of the, the remarkable features of this statue is that if you want to look at, into, the, into the face of Christ, if you want to look into his eyes, the only way you can do it is if you kneel. That is the only way that you can look into the eyes of this statue. And that's the truth when you come to Christ. 
The only way you're going to see him properly, the only way that he will reveal himself to you is if you humble yourself to him. If you kneel before him, if you worship him, come in in submission and adoration to him, then you will see him. If you, if, if you obey him, he will manifest himself to you. You must come to him the way he says you come. Because he is the king. He is God. So where do you find yourself? Are you with the wise men? The true worshiper? Or are you with Herod, a false worshiper, who actually in your heart you hate Christ? I pray that there's no one like that here this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this passage. Uh, so rich, so powerful, so beautiful. We thank you for the example of the wise men, even with their limited knowledge, yet they, they were willing to travel so far, willing to sacrifice so much. And then to come to a, to a little toddler and bow down and worship and give him these exorbitant gifts beyond our understanding. It doesn't make sense on a human level. Not coming to a noble family in some palace, but just a little backwater of the, the Roman Empire. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have worked. We think of your words, Lord Jesus, where you thank the Father that these things are hidden from the the wise and the mighty of this world, but you've revealed them to, to children, to the foolish. Lord, we don't want to be wise in this world and be damned forever. We don't want to be like Herod, to hold on to our crumbling kingdoms. That's all that remains of Herod's empire, ruins. Cruel, scared, tyrant, tried desperately to hold on to his kingdom, even willing to kill his family members. And in the end, though, he lost it all. Oh, Holy Spirit, please show us our hearts if that's where we find ourselves. We want to be like these wise men, giving, worshiping, kneeling before you, Christ. And as we lose everything, the great irony of the gospel, as we lose our lives, we gain our lives. As we give everything away, as we lose everything, as we lose our, our uh, reputations and our kingdoms and all of these things, we gain everything. And if we gain the whole world, we lose our souls. And so, uh, Father, we ask that you would help all of us to, to live generously, to live in humility and worship of you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are the great prophet, priest, and king. You take away our ignorance. You take away our guilt and shame. And you release us from the bondage and tyranny of sin. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.